And do turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. So Isaiah chapter 2. And you'll notice something at the beginning of Isaiah. There's these alternating passages of, of hope and then passages of judgment as well. And here in verses 6 through 11, you'll hear a passage of judgment. And we'll look closely at that uh, together this morning. So Isaiah chapter 2, hear God's word beginning in verse 6. For you have received, you, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of, man, of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you help us by your Spirit's power to be receptive to the message you have for us today, that we together as your people would grow, learn, and not just have head knowledge, but grow in application and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you like to go snow skiing, do we have a few snow skiers? Maybe you're looking forward. Let me, let me see where you are. Okay, good. Good. And um, I think I can confidently say my best skiing days are probably behind me. But... You might know, especially if you're a snow skier, what a yard sale is. A yard sale is a spectacular wipeout where there on the mountain is deposited your mittens, maybe your goggles, a ski pole here, and a ski over there. And it's sort of deposited, looks like your neighbor's property, you know, where you pull in at home and you're like, are they having a garage sale or, or no, that's just... How it looks. You know what I'm talking about. So a yard sale is a spectacular wipeout. And what Isaiah sees happening is he knows a yard sale is coming. He knows a spectacular wipeout for Israel is coming. And even though that wipeout is coming, and it'll come in the form of Babylon coming into Israel and carting them off to exile and conquering them and destroying Jerusalem, even, even though he knows that's coming, there are opportunities all along the way to repent, to turn. And you'll see that in Isaiah. And what I have for you today is to think about this great yard sale is coming. What do we need to do as God's people that we would not go in that same direction? We have perhaps witnessed, perhaps seen people's lives become spectacularly wrecked apart from Christ. 
or because of their own stubbornness and sin. How do we avoid that is the topic before us in verses 6 through 11 of Isaiah 2. And the first thing I want to show you is God empties us. God empties us. You notice this repetition in the passage, and any time in the prophetic literature, especially Isaiah, pay attention where you see repetition. And where's the repetition of this passage? Well, it's in verses 6 through 8. Do you notice the repetition there, full of things, filled, verse 7, filled, verse 7, filled, verse 8. And the reality is, with Israel, their lives are full only they're full of the wrong things. Well, what are they full of? Look in verse 6. They are full of things from the east. The Ammonites and the Moabites were located to the east of Israel, and Israel was placed strategically at the trading crossroads of the Middle East, and they were placed there to be an influence on the nations around them. But what has happened? The Ammonites and the Moabites have influenced Israel rather than Israel influencing them. To be full of things from the east is to adopt the pagan practices of the nations that were around them. To live life their way instead of God's way. They're full of things like, look in verse 6, fortune tellers like the Philistines. The Philistines located southwest of Israel. And to be Fortune-telling is forbidden, and the reason it's forbidden is because it relies on prediction apart from God. This is a way of living apart from God's design. Uh, no one can tell the future, by the way. Isn't that true in the business world with the stock market? So fortune-tellers, they're full of that. They're trusting, in other words, a fortune-teller rather than God. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. That's in verse 6. Well, what does that mean? That's shaking hands, cutting a business deal, making an alliance like Israel would make an alliance with Egypt. We'll see that later in Isaiah. Making these alliances and relying on others rather than on God. And then verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. So they're trusting in their wealth and resources to get them out of the mess that they're in. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. They have an arrogance that is drawn from their own resources and their ability to make war. This sounds like our own country now, doesn't it? The United States of America is filled with silver and gold. No end to their treasures. Our war-fighting capabilities excel as we're seeing weapons utilized in Ukraine uh, that belong to us, that we've given them. There's no end to their chariots. And then verse 8, which is really the capstone of what they're filled with, their land is filled with idols. Filled with idols. Now, an idol is defined, it's not just a little statue uh, that we worship. An idol is anything which takes away worship from God. An idol is not just anything that takes away worship from God, it's anything perhaps important that we make ultimate, and an idol is anything which reduces our dedication and obedience to God. An idol isn't just a statue, in other words. 
And what we read in verse 8, their land is filled with these idols. We remember the words of John Calvin who said that the human heart is a foundry of idols. It is a idol factory. We make idols out of the good things in our life. In Bernie, Texas, there is an idol to family. We would say, oh, come on, family is good. No, it's made ultimate here. We have an idol in terms of material wealth, idol of success. These are the idols of our own community. And what happens here in verse 8? They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. Now, later in Isaiah, if you want to take a peek ahead, and you can... Uh, you can read all of Isaiah. You'll see in Isaiah 44, there is this parable told uh, with reference to idolatry that shows the absolute sham of idolatry and the absolute absurdity of it. And you have a hint of that here in verse 8. Isaiah is exasperated with the behavior of the Israelites and the foolishness of making something with your own hand and bowing down to it when in point of fact, the only one worthy of worship has fashioned you. Why would you fashion something else and bow down to it? So the absurdity of that is shown. Now, these are the idols of our day. This is where the spiritual battle is fought. Now, you may say, as you look at verse 7, well, that's for, that's for rich people. Uh, the idolatry of materialism is not just for rich people. You can be poor, so to speak, and still have an idol of material wealth. And in point of fact, the material wealthy of the United States and the success that we enjoy and the comfort that we enjoy is one of the very things which keeps us from God, which impedes us from full worship and dependence upon Him. Now, you may say, I'm exempt from that. I'm exempt from that, especially after the stock market did what it did uh, this year. But all of us, by comparison, because we use comparison in two ways, we compare ourselves to others to say that we're not rich, but there's another comparison that can be made, and that's to the rest of the world. So the, in the United States, we have a poverty line. Now, for a single it is thir approximately $13,000. So if your income is $13,000 as a single in the United States of America, you're at the poverty line. I think for a family of five, it's around $31,000. But here's the deal. That's how we measure poverty. Well, the World Bank has a different standard of measuring poverty. And they measure it three ways, three different thresholds, depending on the development of the country. Okay, you ready for this? So 13,000 bucks, you're at the poverty line as a single in America. World Bank making $2, $3, or $6 a day puts you at the poverty line. Okay, if you do the math real quick, $6 a day, which is the highest threshold for poverty, according to the World Bank, is 2,600 bucks a year. We're still almost $11,000 away from. That's $11,000 below what we would call a single person who's poor here in America. That's astounding. That should astound you in terms of how good we really have it. 
But isn't it interesting that even though we have it so good, we still want more, we're not content, and we still worship the very thing that's printed on it. It's printed right there on our greenbacks. In God we trust, we say we trust in money instead. So what do you do? What do you do because all around us is filled with the idolatry of money and success and what money can buy and the experiences money can give you? What do we do about that? What do we do about that? First, you can check your 401k balance and you can come back to reality. And you can say, thank you, Lord, that my future is with you. And it's not with the yahoos and the decision that they make either side of the aisle fiscally in the United States of America. Either side of the aisle on that one. And we can trust God with our money, but as well, Luke 12.34 gives us an instruction. Luke 12.34, that's easy to remember because it's one, two, three, four. Luke 12.34 tells us that where our heart is, that where our treasure is, there will your heart be also. Notice where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your, tre- your heart follows your treasure. This is something about our very being, how we're created. Your heart follows your treasure. It's not reversed. It's not reversed. In other words, it's not based on good intention. It is based on when we put our treasure in the right place. When we empty ourselves of the love of money, how do you do that? You take what people worship and you give it away for free. That's one way you do it. You give it to the church. You give it away for free and you support the work of the gospel here in our community in Bernie through the church. And when you give away that which people worship, And that which people call ultimate, you know what happens to our heart? Our heart follows that priority. Our heart follows that priority. It is a mystical, spiritual reality. We cannot in our life, in other words, say, I am a serious, good Christian. Just don't, Jesus, just don't touch my finances. In our life, Every aspect of our life should be oriented and pointed to the one who has redeemed us and rescued us. And so what am I doing? I'm inviting you to consider how great the idol of materialism is in our own day to embrace and to give thanks to God for how good we have it and the things that we enjoy and then to give away that which people call ultimate to give it away for free because we have been given to in Christ. This is the invitation. Uh, And we see here Isaiah coming against what they are full of, what they are trusting in, and God will empty them of it. Now, why does he empty them of it? Is, Is God mean and vindictive to do this? No. He loves them. He loves them, and so he is after their hearts, that their heart would not be divided, that their loyalty would be only to him. 
And so he empties them as a work of his mercy and grace that they would repent, that they would repent. Look at verse 9 here, because if we're going to avoid the same fate as Israel, God will empty us, but he will also humble us. He will humble us. Look at verse 9. Even with everything they are filled of, filled with, what do we read in verse 9? So man is humbled. No matter the possessions we accumulate, the success that we have, no matter the expert guidance we have in the assimilate the assembly of resources and ways of making war that's at the end of verse 7 that we accumulate we're still humbled god is still able to humble us so man is humbled now you may say usually not this crowd but i get the politically correct police called on me a lot in fact they've stopped coming um, they know I'm beyond help. But the idea here in verse 9, don't take offense at the language. I know we don't usually talk this way. We would say, so people are humbled or human beings are humbled. I, I get that. But what the text is doing is it's being true to the actual language of the Hebrew, and it's reflecting that. So when we read, so man is humbled, that's inclusive of everyone, mankind uh, will be humbled. Look at verse 9. Each one is brought low. And then what does Isaiah say here? Do not forgive them. Do not forgive them. Oh, that is serious and bold there. Do not forgive them. I mean, where's the gospel in that? I'll tell you where it's at. Isaiah knowing who Israel is, God's chosen nation, and then seeing that up against the very behavior and what they are filled with, in witnessing that, basically communicates, God, you don't have to forgive them. In fact, don't, because the error of their ways is so great. And thank God for the gospel, because he does forgive. In other words, their guilt is so great, God is justified not to forgive them. But what does he do? We saw in chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Look at this offer. He would be justified not to forgive them, but what does he say? Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And here you really have insight into a proper view of yourself. When we're talking about pride and the sin of pride, sin is, the sin of pride is really about seeing yourself too highly. Now the thing is, we're all conscious of this idea that we need to have a good self-image. In other words, the thoughts that we think about ourselves, those need to be positive, affirmative, and good. But the biblical way to have a proper self-image, the biblically informed way, is to, on the one hand, verse 9, understand that we don't 
earn or deserve forgiveness. And then on the other hand, to see the magnitude of God's love for us in that he forgives us. In other words, to embrace both at the same time. I don't think you can have a really resilient self-image by just sort of assembling affirmative statements about yourself that are not grounded in objective reality. I know that's a mouthful. But what I'm getting at is, you know, when I wake up in the morning, if I, if I have a low self-image, I'm going to have a better self-image by looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a good person. That is not a biblically informed statement. Then you may say, well, that's just depressing. It's only depressing if you don't believe the gospel. In fact, the good news of the gospel becomes even better when we embrace the reality about who we are. And so if we're able to say, do not forgive them, I don't deserve forgiveness, but God has given it to me in Christ. And He loves me in all my failings. And He is working to change my very heart. We've got to embrace both truths. And then that's, now you're grounded in reality. And then the thoughts you think about yourself, you will have truly. This is why people don't have a good self-image. This is why, um, in addition, people think such terrible things about themselves. We deny the reality of who we are before God. And so we can never embrace what He has done for us in Christ. We need both together. In other words... As we look and we see how sinful we are, we see the greatness and goodness of the gospel at the same time and what God has done for us in Christ. We need both. And that's the invitation here. When Isaiah says, do not forgive them, he is saying what they have done does not deserve forgiveness, but God will. He will preserve a remnant. That's first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 9. And this invitation Come now, let us reason together in chapter 1, verse 18. Still applies, and God is still open and ready to receive those who seek Him through Jesus Christ. Now we may say, so man is humbled, each one is brought low, do not forgive them. We may think, uh, yeah, that still doesn't apply to me. We may be so enamored with ourselves that we're unable to to even speak about biblically what's, what's wrong with us in our sin problem. You see, pride is pernicious. The reason why pride is pernicious, it is obvious to everyone else except the prideful person. And you can't break through. You can't tell them anything because they already have an inflated view of themselves. And this week, I want you to do something. I'll give you a little homework here. This week, be on the lookout for grievance stories. Because where a grievance story is, is pride. There's pride there. Where the grievance story is, what's a grievance story? Oh, you, you hear these and we tell them to each other. Uh, you know, I went to such, such and such place, you know, I was at the grocery store and, and I couldn't find the particular cereal that I was looking for. I have a very particular brand that I was looking for and I, I asked the person uh, who was working there where this particular brand of cereal was and, 
and uh, uh, they couldn't find it. And I'm offended because I deserve my cereal. And we, we do laugh. It is funny. And the way I'm telling that's meant to, 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 hu- to use humor because I'm going around and I'm kicking in the door of your life right now. And I'm saying that the United States of America has embraced the victimhood. I, I just told you a story where I'm the victim and I deserve better because I have a high view of myself. And you know, the amazing thing about Christianity is it is the great leveler. There is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are all, all equal in Him. And the reality is that if you're a Christian, people don't have to treat you a certain way because you know in Christ you're already getting what you do not deserve. And you know the one who always and forever treats you well. So you don't have to treat me well. You can insult me. Maybe not today, maybe tomorrow. (laughs) But be on the lookout for these grievance stories which basically communicate there are rules in life and because of my high view of myself, you have to treat me a certain way. And that strikes at the heart of the gospel. Because the gospel says, God takes care of me better than anyone. And I have, at his hand, received that which I cannot earn and do not deserve. The good news is good, in part seen, in light of the fact that we do not deserve forgiveness. And so verse 9, God humbles us. Why does he humble us? He, He loves us. He won't let us go. He'll go after us. He'll empty our lives of the things that we fill our life up, trying to find life apart from Him. And He'll humble us, make us more dependent upon Him because He loves us. And in the end, this is in verses 10 through 11, God is exalted over us. God is exalted over us. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. In other words, if you're not going to come to God in humility, you are going to experience the terror of God. You notice people don't talk this way. People do not in the church talk this way anymore about the terror of God, him coming in his judgment. But I think you see pictures of it. We saw a hurricane come up into Florida. Terrible power. And what did some people do? They fled from it. They evacuated. They left. And that's the point in verse 10. In light of this power, the only thing you can do is run and hide. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. And those who have entered into the rock of Jesus Christ, those whose lives are hidden in him, God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. He sees Christ's perfect record. We are reconciled to God. And so what do we see? Verse 10, not the terror of God. We see the splendor of his majesty. And we see the power in his just judgment 
for sin. We experience the splendor of his majesty. Look at verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That points to a future time of judgment when Christ will return. But we see hints in Isaiah, different moments of judgment in the history of Israel, which all point to the ultimate judgment of that day. And we'll learn more next week about that day. But can you imagine for a moment that all people, no matter how much they achieve or what they do, no matter how great our advancements as a civilization, God is still exalted over us. And this high view of God is something you don't really encounter in much of evangelical Christianity anymore. This high view of God which says He is exalted over all His competitors. You must turn to Him in Christ, or you will be judged, says no one ever in a broadly evangelical church anymore. But it's true. It is true. And this, the time to repent and turn to him is now. And the one who receives Christ, their lives are hidden and they are protected. The judgment due to us for sin fell on Christ at the cross, and we are shielded from him. And so, thinking high thoughts of God, having a theology where God is exalted, is a prerequisite for understanding not only the prophetic literature, but Isaiah especially. Our view of God is too low. Our view of God is too low, and as we're called by Isaiah to have the greatest thoughts of God. And A.W. Tozer, I think he was onto something when he said, the most important thing about a person is what they think about God. That's true, isn't it? You have low thoughts of God, your life will reflect that. But the Bible calls us to have the highest theology, and here's the good news. Maybe A.W. Tozer didn't know this at that time, but we know it now. Not only is what you think about God important, but you know what's even more important than that? Praise God for this, what he thinks of us, what he thinks of us. And so, yes, have high thoughts of God, have the highest theology, only that will do. At the same time, know that God thinks highly in some ways of you. Why? Because he sees your life hidden in Christ. In and of ourselves, we are not commendable to God, but if we enter into the rock, we are protected. And he sees us, and he loves us, and he will be exalted in all things. Last point here. We might think for a moment, God exalted over everything. Is God some kind of megalomaniac that he demands all the glory? Is, is this really what life is about? This is how great God is. God is not a megalomaniac. He rightfully deserves and demands all glory and all worship because he is that great. And one day, if you belong to Christ, 
you will see his greatness and experience his mercy to the fullest. Let's pray together. God, how we thank you that you do not let us go without a fight, that you empty us. And in those moments in our life where we have trusted in other things and you empty us, have compassion and mercy on us and make us responsive to your emptying. And then those times you humble us, Lord, catch us this week even in our pride where we think too much of ourselves when we adopt this victim mentality and say people have to treat us a certain way. Help us with that, understanding that the Savior took on abuse for us, that we in turn might be identified with Him. And then, Lord, we thank you for your exaltation. We know who has the final word, and you will be exalted over all the achievements of all civilizations for all time. And we will be privileged to give you the worship and glory when we see it. And we pray, help us as you alone are exalted, that we might exalt you both in our worship and in the way we live our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.